You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. I, you know, I have started so many sermon series I realized the other day. I'm not sure how it it always just works that way. It, not always, but many times it seems like that ends up being how it starts. Uh, but you get me to start with, so apologies in advance. Hopefully you packed a lunch because we have a lot to go through, surprisingly. Uh, I have many things to say. Some of them might be worth listening to even. Um, so we're going to start off, uh, like Rob said, we're talking about family values. Why is family hard? And so it seems like a fitting way to start this series to set a a prize for our eyes to focus on, I guess, would be to look at our our core value of family that we have here at Mission Ridge, uh, one of our core tenets. So uh, no, go ahead and throw that up there. Uh, The primary metaphor for the church in the New Testament is that of family. The entire biblical narrative is relationally driven and seeks to bring peace between peoples. We will fight for healthy relationships over anything else to build healthy community. Uh, Specifically, we're going to fight for healthy relationships. We want to make sure that it's not, we're not just patching things together. We're not just family for family's sake. We want relationships to be healthy. Um, That is something that is, that we feel very strongly about. Um, And we've seen that play out a couple of times in how we want to deal with situations. Um, so part of that, uh, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is just my experience, but, uh, in my experience, family sometimes involves conflict. Um, I might be alone in that. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced any sort of conflict or, uh, was it the, the term in marriage, intense fellowship? Is that what they, that what they call that intense fellowship, something like that. Um, <clears throat> But occasionally we get to we get to either be involved in a conflict or we get to watch a conflict play out as a kind of a, a secondary character, a third third character in the story. Um, and we're we're using one of Jesus's parables today to talk about what it looks like to restore peace when this conflict arises, when we have situations in family that are hard and that are difficult to deal with. And this is, this is talking about core, like biological marriage family, the family unit, and also your broader social family, your friends, your coworkers, that family group, the family that you choose, kind of, so to speak, right? And then, and also the church family. And there's probably some overlap within those three categories, but we're, what we're talking about in this series is going to apply to all three of these different types of families. So we want to keep that in mind that this isn't just your mom, dad, aunt, uncle, cousins, siblings. This is the people that you go to church with. This is the people that you live with on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to go to Luke 15 this morning. And as we talked about in our parable series, we want to make sure that since we're using a parable, we understand the context in which Jesus is telling this parable. Why does Jesus tell this story? What sort of point is he trying to make? We figure that out. Who is he talking to? What is his agenda for this story? 
Uh, and we see it, Luke 15, at the beginning of this, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Ugh! <sighs> that Jesus guy, eating with sinners? What is he thinking? Associating with tax collectors. Okay, uh, let's understand a little context here. Jesus is eating with those people to the Pharisees. The Pharisees view these people as dirt on their shoe. They look down their nose at these people. They don't like them. Now, why is this? The Pharisees hold a very strict religious conviction. Their conviction is that if you follow the law without fail, that if you just follow the law well enough, that will bring about Messiah, which will release them from Roman oppression. That God has put them under Roman oppression because they aren't following the law well enough. This is what the Pharisees believe. And they believe it. This is their conviction. And this is how they live out their life. And a lot of times we like to beat them up for that, but really that is a strong conviction. And I, I, I respect that in a lot of ways. And I think that Jesus respects that in a lot of ways, but every once in a while, the Pharisees tend to miss the point or they miss a point. <clears throat> so they don't like the fact that Jesus is sitting and eating with these people. And you might ask yourself, why is sitting and eating with people so bad? It's just sitting around, you know, you just, they're just, they're just talking, right? This is just meeting up with a person at the coffee shop. Like, or, or, you know, there's probably been a couple family dinners where you've got the sister-in-law or the, the brother-in-law or your, your parent-in-law or something where you're like, we just, you know, there's a little tension maybe. You don't get along too well. But, you know, all right, we can sit down and have a, a Christmas dinner, right? I can think of a lot of movies that follow that, that play off that tension. Understanding that culture sitting down to a meal with someone signified something a little bit more than we have in our culture. Sitting down and breaking bread with someone means that you are in a place where you are all right with them. You are, everything is good with you. Jesus, by sitting down with these sinners and tax collectors and breaking bread with them is saying that I don't have any beef with you. You're okay. We are in right relationship. And the Pharisees are looking at this and saying, why are you condoning them when you should be condemning them? So Jesus responds to the Pharisees with this teaching of a parable. And it's told in three parts. We're going to talk about the third part today, the, the majority, the big chunk. Uh, but it's one parable told in three parts. The part one is the lost sheep. Part two is the lost coin. And we'll talk about both of those in footnotes and how they tie in, how they relate. Those are little shorter sections. And then part three is the prodigal son. Most of you have probably heard this or some variation on this or, or heard some pop culture reference that uses this. This is a common story that we use. I think the, the only one that might be more common is the Good Samaritan in my mind. I can't think of anyone that would be more common than this one or that maybe. But because we've probably read this story a gazillion times, you could probably tell this to me just, you could probably just tell me the story pretty well. Um, so we're going to take a little different approach today. We're going to, we're going to try to connect with this on a deeper level. Uh, we're going to try to apply it a little bit more to our lives and understand this a little bit more than we would if we just read the 2000 year old text. So we're going to start off the, uh, 
See, this is, this is our, our characters there that we have going on, Jesus, the Pharisees, and the sinners. And uh, maybe you'll catch this when we switch. We, we're going to start our story with a rancher named George. Jorge. Uh, and this, this rancher named George has two sons. He's got two sons, Bill and Ted. Bill is the oldest. He's the eldest son. And Ted is the younger son. All right. And Ted's got a really cool bro tank on. I thought, dude, Jen's going to crack me up the entire time. She's going to love this. It's gonna, there's going to be a lot of laughter coming from the tech booth. <clears throat> anyway, we got to get going here. So the, the story starts with these, these are our characters. And Ted tells his father that he wants his inheritance and his portion of the, the estate. He wants his stuff, which is essentially like saying, I hate your guts and I wish you were dead. It's not like saying, just give me what's, give me what I, it's, I want you dead, dad. You're, you're as good as dead to me. This type of offense could get a boy taken out back and give him a whooping, right? Or quite literally, if you followed Leviticus, it would get him stoned and, you know, everybody go throw rocks at him until he was dead. He, this is a, this is a, a huge offense. And George does the unexpected and decides to give Ted his portion of the estate, which is, our first le- drastic left turn in this parable. Everybody's going, wait, what? Well, he did what? This guy's crazy. Now, this entails figuring out what everything is worth and selling off one third of it for Ted. Uh, the way that this worked back in, in their, their time is you would have uh, the estate would be, it would exist. So we got our box up there. That's the whole estate. And you would break it into one more part than however many kids you had. So in this case, he's got two kids. So they break it into three parts and the eldest gets a double portion. If they had four kids, they'd break it into five parts and the eldest gets two fifths, right? This double portion is because the eldest bill is the behore. He is going to take over as the patriarch, the head of the family when his father dies. And he has to carry on the legacy of that family. He has to take care of the estate and all of the people that are under it. It is his responsibility to do this. And because of that, because he has this added responsibility, he gets an added portion of the inheritance so that he can take care of the bed of the household. Now, selling off the portion of the estate takes away from everyone in the household. Keep in mind, you've probably experienced this where you have an estate or, a, or you, you've got a chunk of change and then the IRS takes a large portion of it in taxes or something and suddenly you have a lot less and you're like, that dividend is a lot less, like there's a lot fewer things that I'm going to get and I can do with this money, right? By, by selling this off, he's hurting everyone in the household. There's still the same number of people in the household, but Ted's going to take this and he's going to run away with it. He's going to go do his own thing. He's not playing as a team player here. He's hurting everyone. They now have less to work with because of Ted's selfish move. Ted leaves and decides to go to a neighboring city that has a worse reputation than Vegas and spends all of his money partying on sex, drugs, and SoundCloud rap, I'm sure. Uh, George can see the neon lights from the city. Uh, George, it says a far off land in your translation, but this is really where Jesus is teaching. It's the city that's across the lake. They can see the lights from this Greek Gentile Roman city that you can't even, if you're a Jew, you can't even say the name of it. This has a horrible reputation. You say the name and you're unclean. They, this, they don't like this city. 
He knows where Ted is. George, the father knows where Ted is and what he's doing with his life. And he can see that. And he's reminded of his shame every day. So uh, Ted's spending all his money, bad investments, buying GameStop stock or something. I, who knows? Uh, and then there's a giant recession that hits. And Ted has spent all of his money or he's lost it all or what, what, whatever happens. He's in a bad place and he ends up taking a horrible job that he can't even afford to eat. He is sent down into the dregs and he is, he is lowered and put into a place where he says, uh, even my, my father's servants are fed better. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Yeah, please would be nice. But all right. <clears throat> now this move is, is coming from a place of survival for Ted. It's not necessarily coming from a place of repentance. In fact, he quotes Pharaoh here, uh, which we'll talk about in footnotes a little bit, but Pharaoh is not exactly the most repentant of characters. Um, so Ted isn't necessarily all that repentant. He just is in a bad place and he knows that his father is gracious enough that if he goes back, he has a shot of being able to have enough food for himself. Pause. Let's talk about what happens if he decides to go home. There is a ceremony within that culture. There's a, a word, kazaza, which is super fun to say. And this literally means cutting off. And this kazaza ceremony is what he would be expecting if he goes home. This is probably what's going to happen to him. And if Ted returns home after losing his family's inheritance to the Gentiles, which was a big no-no, there's a lot of shame there. Ted would be mocked and the community members would fill a large pot, an earthen jar with burnt corn of all things. That's what you do. And they would throw it down and break it at Ted's feet. And they would say that you were cut, that he was cut off. And then they would turn their backs on him and they would treat him as if he was dead. They would have nothing to do with him. He is cut off from the community. You have shamed us by losing your family's inheritance to the Gentiles. Shame on you. We will have nothing to do with you. This is probably what is going to happen to Ted when he comes home. Resume the story. Ted heads home, but while he is still a long way off, his father sees him, feels compassion and comes running to welcome him, hug him and kiss him. Dad comes running out, which we've probably heard stories before. Patriarchs in that culture do not run. Do not run. They will have people, they will let people die because they can't get to them soon enough before they will run. It's, it's crazy. It does not compute for our Westerners. Like, but that is, that is their, the shame of that. Some people say it's because they, you know, to show their legs if they had to pull up their robes so they don't trip. I, I, I they don't run. This father goes running why does he do George? George, the father is watching for the son to return. He's keeping an eye on the horizon on that city that he knows his son is at. He's looking and hoping and praying that his son is going to return, that Ted's going to come home. He's probably running because he has to get out there before anybody else in the community can start this Kazaza 
before anybody else notices. He's got to get there first so that they don't shun him. Remember that this is the same dad that Ted said earlier, I wish you were dead, right? Yeah, that's for sure how I treat people who wish I was dead. That's for sure. I don't know if that's convicting for anyone, but like that's definitely how I treat people that don't like me. That's a lot of sarcasm. I don't know if it came through on the mask or not, but there's a lot of sarcasm caught down in my beard right now. Um, So Ted starts to apologize like he planned to. He starts it, but he doesn't even get it all out. Um, George cuts him off and tells him, uh, tells his hired hands, he yells at everybody, bring, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Get this lost and is found, lost and is found through these parables. (laughs) Then everyone starts the party. Uh, George is throwing a party big enough for the, just as a side note, for the entire town to feast. Like a, a goat is enough for the entire household, probably. Uh, like, I don't, I don't know if you've, the last time you sat down and ate an entire cow, most of the time you fill your freezer with a cow, right? Like that, that'll carry you through the year for a family. This is, this is enough that they're going to kill the fattened cow and they're, they're going to feed the entire city, the entire village. He's making a declaration to everybody in that village that my son is back and there is no shame on him. He is my son again. No one's throwing burnt corn at this boy. George is treating Ted in a manner that's, he's very clearly claiming him as his son, Pharaoh and Joseph. We said Pharaoh claimed Joseph in this manner. We'll talk about that in footnotes too, but there's some similarities there. He's claiming him as his son. He's saying, nope, you're back in. You're good. We're in right relationship. So everyone is at the party, except for Bill. Y'all remember Bill, the eldest son? Guy with the tie. So he comes back and uh, asks, what's the hubbub about? Like, what's going on? He'd been out in the field working and uh, asked the servant, the servant says, your brother's come and, the father ki- and your father killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And of course, Bill is super stoked about this. He's happy to see his brother. Uh, joyful, goes running in. He's like, pour me, a, pour me a drink. Where's that red solo cup? Let's do this thing. I'm gonna party. Bro's home. No, not at all. Bill is furious. He refuses to go inside. He throws himself a little temper tantrum. I imagine him sitting outside like, chopping wood or something, you know, Captain America style, ripping it apart with his hands or something. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I definitely remember a couple of times where I was mad at my parents and I would go outside and just destroy something uh, in the name of work because that would let me vent. And apparently that was going to hurt them if I chopped wood or something. I don't know how that, played. I was really smart as a kid. Um, so why is Bill mad though? Why is Bill mad? Uh, well, you, you remember how the estate got split into three parts, right? And then, and then, so he got the two and that was the remainder. Well, that, that's so, all that's left is that, ignore the bottom one for a second here, but all, the, all that's left is that top one, the red portion, and that's where that fattened calf is coming from, right? So this, this estate, all that it was left was bills, now, it's not Bill's yet because his dad's still alive, but in Bill's eyes, it's 
probably bills. I don't know if you've ever been in a sort of situation where you're like, where you start, I don't know if you have a family member that passes away and all of a sudden tensions get really, really high. I remember experiencing that with uh, when my, uh, my grandparents, a couple of my grands passed away and the tensions between my dad and my, my uncle, you know, they get along great. And for whatever reason, tensions got a little high uh, and, and it created some conflict in our family that played out for years, years afterwards. And in fact, I'm not really, not really sure if it's even completely finished playing out. Uh, it's, it's funny how we start to view those things. So that might sound a little selfish because Bill's thinking like, that's my cow they're using to celebrate that jack wagon that screwed everyone over. Like this guy messed things up for everyone. And now we're celebrating him with my stuff. Oh man. sounds a little selfish, but I gotta be honest. I would feel the exact same way. Like that's just where it's at. Uh, I'm a flawed, horrible person. And I would feel the, that's my initial, like, what is, what is dad doing? You got to be out of your ever loving mind. So Ted's, and then the other thing is, uh, go back to that other one, if you would, Jen. Ted's back, and, and he's accepted as a son again. Now, this is almost more terrifying. Like, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll sacrifice a cow for, for the, the lost found brother, but he's back as a son. That might mean, does he get another inheritance chunk? Like, if dad dies, does he, he's back in? And, and, and just maybe not even from a selfish side, Bill has to keep the legacy of the family farm, this, 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 this legacy of the Bedov. He has to keep this going. He has to provide for everyone and lead this family after his dad passes away. And Ted's decisions keep hurting that. They make it harder and harder. So if, if he does get this, you have less and less to work with for the same number or a growing number of people. So even if Bill's not being selfish, it's easy to empathize with him and say, like, oh, I get where he's a little frustrated, a little hot and bothered. Ted's decisions and, frankly, George's reckless love for his son. What the heck is he thinking? The father being gracious and kind, what are you doing? It's making it harder and harder for him to do that. So George comes out. Dad comes out and tries to talk to him, tries to get him to calm down and come join the party. Bill is having none of it. And he yells at his dad. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Okay, so maybe, maybe it is the selfish side of things. You're not even giving me a goat. This guy gets a fattened calf. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, love that line. You killed the fattened calf for him. Bill is, Bill is irate. Let's pause for a second. You guys remember the situation in which Jesus is telling the parable. You remember this? Back to that, that original one, you get Jesus and the Pharisees and, and the, the sinners that are sitting at his feet. <clears throat> Jesus, a respected rabbi, a.k.a. a leader, is sitting down and eating with a bunch of Gentiles, or a bunch of Gentile-loving traitors and sinners. Gosh, 
Those people sound a lot like Ted. There, there you go. They sound a lot like Ted. I think I got all the colors matched up. I'm colorblind, so I don't really know. They might be chartreuse for all I know. That's not true. Uh, the Pharisees, who think that if everyone would just follow the law correctly, if they would just work hard enough, follow your commands, oh God, we've never disobeyed a command, then God would get rid of the Romans. AKA the sinners and the tax collectors, the people who aren't following the law well enough are the ones that are screwing it up for everyone. They're hurting everyone. Goodness me, that sounds a lot like something Bill would say. I wonder if the Pharisees are getting hit swear in the eye with this. So we resume the story and George tells his son, son is Bill. He says, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. George isn't angry and he tells Bill everything is his. He's not mad. He just got chewed out by Bill. Bill's really kind of dishonoring his father in this too. Take him out back and stone him. But George, at least George is consistent. George is consistent. He's consistently loving. And apparently it's a big deal to celebrate when someone is restored. It's fitting to celebrate. And of course the story ends with Bill getting it and they all go inside and they, we have a happy Disney ending, right? No, we don't, maybe we have no idea. The story just stops. It's a cliffhanger. Jesus stops the parable right there. We don't know what happens. I, and I think this is Jesus saying, all right, Pharisees, ball is in your court. What are you going to do? Are you going to literally come inside, sit down and join the party, the celebration for the lost that are found? Or are you going to stay outside and have a pity party? Ball's in your court. <clears throat> so let's talk about the main thing that God is expressing in this parable that Jesus is talking about. God loves to find lost things. People. He loves to find lost people. So if you're listening to this online or wherever, somewhere on a podcast, if you're listening to this and you find yourself in a place where you feel lost, where you feel far away, you feel separated, you can go ahead and let that warm feeling of grace and mercy and love creep from your head to your toes. Because this, this parable has a really warm, fluffy side of this redemptive story of, of Ted. And that really it's the love, the crazy love of the father. God is just sitting there waiting for you to come home. Even if you don't have it all figured out yet, Ted did not have it all figured out yet. God is just waiting for you to come home. Jesus is sitting there waiting at the table for you to come and sit down and eat. To be in right relationship with him. Even if you are some gigantic hot mess. Can't tell me, they, they, it's not like they, they, they were still sinners and tax collectors. They, hadn't, they weren't former sinners and tax collectors. They are still a gigantic hot mess. And Jesus is sitting down 
taking him, taking them under his wing. So that's the warm, fluffy side of the parable. So enjoy that for a, for a second. All right, now we're going to talk about the convicting part where anybody else and myself get nailed to the wall. Great, cool. I love this parable so much. Not at all. I was not, not excited for this. Let's talk about some things that I don't like in this parable, the things that drive me nuts. One, there is nothing that says that Ted is safe when George welcomes him back. That son, he's done nothing. To, he, he, he has not changed that we know of, other than he is, he's hit rock bottom. He hasn't done anything. He's not even really that repentant. And George, the dad just runs out and welcomes him before, like he cuts him off. He hasn't even said all he wanted to say. Hey, dad's got an agenda and it doesn't matter if Ted is repentant. And sure, that sort of grace, that sort of love, when I think like, okay, yeah, that's God's love and it's going after everybody, right? Goes and chases the 99, little Corey Asbury, reckless love, right? That's all fine and dandy until I start to apply it to the relationships in my own life. And the minute I start to try to reply, like I start to put that into context within my own life and say like, okay, I'm supposed to treat people with, oh, that sort of love. I, I gotta be honest, I start to resent that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's terrible. That person who rolls down the road at Thanksgiving pulls into the driveway and you're like, oh, they're here. Oh, crap. Gritted teeth, tension rising. You feel that in the back of your neck. You're just like tense because that person's here. Ted showed up. That person comes and sits down in church and you're just like, Jesus, what are you doing sitting with those guys? Oh, that, that gets, that sort of love and grace, well, I love it for myself. It's incredibly difficult when I have to apply it to other people. It gets uncomfortable. It feels very real. And it feels like this story implies that I should just take it on the chin when Ted hurts me. The proverbial Ted right? Or when I see Ted hurting somebody else, we're supposed to just take that on the chin. I don't know about you, but I, I, that is not my response. That is a hard, that is an incredibly hard truth to swallow. And the love shown by the father is, I, it's beyond anything that I probably will ever be able to achieve. but I can keep trying. So there, there's a little, it's a little bittersweet there. I can keep trying, but that is convicting. I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable when I think about that in this parable. I don't like taking things on the chin. And then last but not least here, uh, I agree and I resonate with so much of what Bill says. And that just bugs the ever loving out of me. I was, be completely honest, I was a little perturbed earlier this week in Sermon Club. We'll talk about that more in a second. 
But uh, there, I resonate with so much of what Bill says. So many times I literally have said, God, where's my goat? Because I know he knows the story. I'm just expressing it. Even though I don't, I shouldn't want to be Bill, but I'm like, I'm Bill, where's my goat? Like I have been faithful. When are you going to show up? Throw me a bone here, God. So many times. Sometimes I didn't even think it was a bad thing. Then I realized later, I'm like, oh man, there you go again. Elder brother. As an eldest, I resonate with this also. And I've lived out and I'm living out situations in which there's conflict in my relationships, in my, with people in my, in my family, where I, I get to live out where I'm watching some character named Ted say horrible things or do horrible things to people that I love. I get to watch that. I get to experience that. And frankly, it sucks. It's horrible. Breaks my heart. And I got to be honest, more often than not, my initial response when that Ted comes walking down the road is I would be the first one out there with the jar to smash it at their feet, if not their head. Like corn on you. Like that, that is my initial response. If I'm being honest, that is where I would find myself. So when I read this parable, it nails me to the wall. And I hate it. It's horrible. It's good. But by golly, it sucks. Some of this comes from when you're early in the story, when I'm early in the story and Ted is still in a far off land, he's still off gallivanting with the SoundCloud rappers. It's hard for me to envision because I know, because I know the promise of God. I know there's a possibility he comes walking down that road. And it is really hard for me to imagine and comprehend what I will do to receive him when he comes walking down that road, when she comes walking down that road. It's really hard for me to imagine that because I'm, I'm not there in the story yet, right? In some situations, I've been through the whole story. In other situations, I'm right in the mess of it. It's really hard to understand that at that point. In that case, it's really helpful to talk about these situations in community. We had a great example of that earlier this week in Sermon Club. Apparently, we're going to talk about that on footnotes more. I don't want to talk about that on footnotes. I'm in charge of footnotes. None of you will hear about it, even if we do talk about it. Um, it's a joke. I'll be honest. Maybe. I was a bit riled up at Sermon Club. I, like, I came in. I, I already don't like this parable. I don't know if you picked that up. Like, I don't, this one's already, like, I think we scheduled this sermon, I, I don't know, it was like a month or two ago where we planned this out. And Rob's like, oh, you got to preach that one. I'm like, son of a... I love you, Rob. Those words going on in my head. I was stoked. I was thinking, how can I get COVID right around that time? It sounds better. It's a really bad. It's not. That's not. Ay, ay, ay. Right? It's not good. It's not good. Uh, and then, but so we're sitting in sermon club and, and right, we're wrestling through this. And like, I like this parable, but uh, I just don't want to talk about it because it's like, it hits too close to home right now. Like, there's just. Uh, I know too many Ted's. None of them are Ted Lasso, so they're just bad Ted's. 
And then Rob said something, and I don't even remember what it was, and maybe that's what we're going to talk about in footnotes, and he's going to trigger me again. It'd be great. And I was just, I went limbic. Like, I don't know whether Jen wanted to be there or not. She says, she claimed her face did not say that she, she was enjoying the, the tension of the room was palpable. You could taste it. <clears throat> but, but it was really good because by the end of Sermon Club, we'd landed on something pretty darn well. And that got me wrestling in the right direction. And, and honestly, getting Rob's perspective and Jen's perspective on things was exceedingly valuable. So I, I bet that some great conversations could occur this week at Care Group. Caveat, if you let them. Personally, I'm going to run and flee from my care group because that sounds way more. That's a joke. I'm not going to actually run away. Sorry, Jen and Mike. You're, they probably won't let me. Uh, <laughs> I heard that laugh. <laughs> like, we're locking the doors. It's fine. So if you let them, some fantastic conversations could occur. Enough about that. <clears throat> let's, talk, uh, let's talk implication. Big takeaway for us this, this Sunday, this April 11th. Implication, God cares about the conflict happening in your family. Seek him to understand how he wants to restore peace. There is conflict happening in your family, whether that be your immediate family, your social, larger social family, friends, uh, or your church family. There's conflict, or I think it's safe to say there's some sort of conflict somewhere. If you don't, I want to know what the secret sauce is. Share that with the class. But uh, yeah, there's a verse out of James that we can we can get something from on this. It says, "For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God." Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Most of us get angry in conflict. That's not produce the righteousness of God. Seek him to understand how he wants to restore peace. When we take the implanted word, we take God's word, when we wrestle with the teachings from him and we let those permeate every single part of us, we let those get into us and affect how we exist. We grow in our understanding of how to navigate conflict in our families. When we let God's word get into our hearts and do its work, we grow in our understanding of how to navigate, how to, to walk out those, those issues, how to restore peace. This is a process that never stops. You never stop growing in this. You never reach a point which you're like, ah, I have achieved masterhood at this. No. This is part of living out the resurrection that Rob was talking about last week, right? We're going to live out this resurrected life. We're going to, God is seeking to repair and bring death to life, restoring peace, going from conflict and chaos to peace, shalom. It's death to life. It's restoration of that. It's resurrection. So how do we do that? 
some tangible, like, what are, all right, what, what, what's my first step? This is a big, it's a big matzo ball. How do I chop this up? First step, we watch, we pray and prepare to welcome the lost back. We seek to be like the father in the story. One eye on the horizon. Just always looking for, is he coming? Is he coming? Is he coming? Is that person walking down the road? Ready and eager for restoration. We need to make it a habit of looking for people who are looking for resurrection. There are people out there. When we, when we pray during directed prayer, we pray for our neighbor a lot of times, right? It's usually number two on the docket. We pray for our neighbors. This is what we're talking about. Saying, God, who do I need to be aware of that you got coming down the pike? Who's coming down that road that I need to run out and get before the corn hits? That's such an odd phrase. I can't believe I'm like that. That's going to be a thing for me now when the corn hits. Who do we need to be looking for? Who do you need to have in your sights be watching on the horizon and say, all right, God, it's today the day. It's today the day. Are they there? Are they coming? Watch, pray, and prepare to welcome the lost back. Number two. Celebrate when lost people are found resurrected. When lost people are resurrected. We need to celebrate this. God loves finding lost things. He loves finding the lost. He loves when they come back. He loves seeing people restored. I don't think there's anything that makes him happier. And we should celebrate this right along with God. It is good. It is, it, is, it is right to celebrate that. And not sit outside being angry or jealous or hurt or whatever, whatever our hang up is for why that, you know, whatever baggage we have, we need to put that down and just celebrate that with God. And I'm going to be honest, it's way easier to say that than it is to actually do it. It's way easier to say it than it is to do it. And thankfully... God is patient because forgiveness is tied in with that. Bill has to forgive his brother for the hurt that he's caused. The father has to forgive the son for the hurt that he's caused. You guys remember the sermon about the unforgiving servant, uh, servant back in, uh, was the unforgiving sermon, uh, back in February that we talked about. Um, all of that still applies. So go ahead and go back and go back and, Suffer through that one again. Sorry, it's not one of Rob's. Uh, you get to suffer through it. But, uh, I'm gonna, but one thing specifically out of that, though, that we, we should probably key on is, is what forgiveness is not. Right? This is, the dad throws the robe on him, and, and Bill's worried. He's like, dude, he's just back in. Like, is this, is this, this is it? You're just like, he's back, and back to normal. And that's really hard for us. And I got to believe that that's not exactly what's going on here. Because I'm not going to tell you to take danger, a dangerous person and put them back into a dangerous position or a position in which they could be dangerous. Or that is not what we should do. That, that's stupid. We're not going to do that. I am going to tell you that when that person is found, you and your community should celebrate it. And so to do that, to celebrate that well, to do it in a way and to help them along the path of restoration and to get them to a point where maybe they could be back in that place where God has restored them 
to a place where they could be back in that position. They could be back in that sort of relationship even. It's possible. But that takes us to step number three, which is to disciple those that are seeking resurrection. We don't just throw a robe on them and ignore them. Yes, they celebrate. But I imagine that the next day, the father has Ted out there and he is taking him under his wing. And the father is probably hoping that Bill will take Ted under his wing. Because I know that's exactly what Jesus is hoping the Pharisees are going to do. He's hoping that the Pharisees get the point of saying, yeah, you should celebrate that these people are back in and you should bring them along because yes, they should live out the law. You're not wrong, Pharisees. You're just not giving them a chance. And it's your job, Pharisees, to bring them in and disciple them. The people who come back into the fold need to be discipled. If not, then we set them up to repeat the same mistakes. You want to make, Bill, you want to make sure that Ted goes and runs off with another third of the estate? Because guess what? The dad's going to be just as generous this time too. He doesn't stop being generous. You want to make sure that happens? Don't disciple him. He'll fall back into the same thing. You want to make it a different story? Take him under your wing, Bill. Oof. I hate this parable. I love it, but I hate it. I'll tell you what, this is not a church where we will just pat each other on the back, give a couple high fives. Got my hand up there. A couple high fives. When people say the sinner's prayer or get, you know, baptized. Woohoo, we did another dunking. That's not like we'll celebrate it, absolutely, but it does not end there. It is our job to take people under our wing and to help them down the path to say, all right, super stoked you're in. Come along and follow me as I'm following Jesus. That's the type of church, that's the type of family that we're going to be here at Mission Ridge. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.